Hi folks! Before we get rolling with today's episode, quick reminder that this Saturday, June 25th, I'll be speaking at the live-streamed Intelligent Speech Conference. Intelligent Speech is a history conference where your favorite history podcasters tell stories, participate in round tables, and answer your questions. My presentation will be on our old friends Chester Arthur, Roscoe Conkling, and the political double-cross that saved American democracy. It's one of my favorite stories, and we're going to have fun with it. And I'll save time for some Q&A at the end. I'll put a link to the conference in the episode description. Save 10% on your ticket by using the code ABRIDGED. Hope to see you there. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 26B, an interview on Taft and the Supreme Court with Kevin Burns. I'm excited to welcome Kevin Burns to the show today. Kevin is an assistant professor of political science and economics at Christendom College and author of William Howard Taft's Constitutional Progressivism, which explores Taft's progressivism in the presidency and during his decade on the Supreme Court. And that time on the Supreme Court is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So the the first question I want to ask is, what inspired your interest in Taft? Yeah, so this book uh, basically started in grad school with my dissertation. And so unsurprisingly, uh, there were some graduate seminars that got me interested in Taft. My, My teacher, David Nichols, who's a scholar of separation of powers, courts, presidency, this sort of thing, had a couple seminars on jurisprudence and the presidency. And out of those, I wrote a term paper, which ended up being a dissertation, and that finally turned into a book. But the really, the really big thing, I think, is that in the seminar on the presidency, I did a paper on Taft's book on the presidency. So in his post-presidency career, he writes, uh, it's actually originally a series of lectures that he delivers multiple times, but he writes this book on the presidency. And it's the only book the only comprehensive book on the presidency written by a former president. So you can think of alternatives to this, right? Doesn't Woodrow Wilson have all of these books on politics and the presidency? Yes, he does. But pretty much that's uh, when he's a professor or when he's campaigning. Sometimes his campaign speeches are published as a book. Or you could think, um, what about presidential memoirs? Sure, fair enough. Um, but generally speaking, those are a little bit more personal. They're telling more stories. They're not really focused on sort of the president's role in the constitutional structure. The only real alternative to Taft's book is actually Grover Cleveland. I know y'all, you've recently done uh, some interviews on Cleveland, right? Cleveland, in his post-presidency, goes to Princeton, and he delivers a series of lectures, which are later published. Um, and those are very good. They're really interesting, uh, and is an ex-president. But again, he's really focusing almost exclusively on removal power and how this plays into civil service reform and fights between the president and Congress over patronage. Taft's book, even though it's relatively short, is actually quite comprehensive. He basically goes through Article 2, which sets up the executive branch, constitutional clause by constitutional clause, and it really is a pretty comprehensive take on how he understands the presidency and the constitutional order. And so it's not just a a fun read, it's actually really quite intelligent, it's useful, and you get a sense of his personality. It's humorous, he makes fun of himself, he pokes a little bit of fun at his political opponents. So that's sort of where it started. And just to segue in, um, as I was reading more on this, I noticed there's a sort of scholarly astigmatism on Taft. The standard narrative is Taft is 
this old, overweight, stuffy, you know, he'll never move, he's this rock-ribbed conservative, and his whole goal in political life was to slow down change. He's the anti-progressive president, he's the anti-progressive chief justice. And it's not that that's 100% wrong, but it is obviously <laughs> true, right? Does Taft have conservative opinions? Sure he does. Does he have progressive opinions? Absolutely. Uh, most of us aren't exactly in one extreme camp or the other, and Taft is there uh, somewhere far, far closer to the middle than to the hard right. Um, so basically, what I argue is Taft is a complicated progressive on constitutional interpretation, He's a conservative. Antonin Scalia actually praises his jurisprudence and says he's some sort of model originalist. But at the same time, Taft is interested in progressive public policy. And so he sort of cross-sections our traditional divide, and he's a liberal on policy, but a conservative on the Constitution, which is something that, generally speaking, makes modern Americans' minds explode. We think it has to be more, more simple than that. So he's just an interesting guy in a very strange historical time. Yeah, we're much more interested into the yin-yang of things. You know, you're all this, you're all that. Uh, also, it makes so much sense that Taft would be the one president who would write that book about the presidency. He was such a nerd for the Constitution, uh, such a, a legal first guy. Uh, and that segues into my, my next question. Well, you know, it comes up again and again reading about Taft that his chief ambition never was the presidency. It was the Supreme Court. Where did that aspiration come from? Yeah, um, Taft loved the law. Um, I've read stories, and obviously the stuff when he was a kid, it's a little bit harder to pen down if this is definitely historical truth or not, but I've read stories that he's reading British case law when he's 12 years old, um, which is just astounding. I mean, he's smart enough that I would believe it, but certainly I mean, who I was never doesn't? It's anywhere. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. You and I, we, we both did that, so it's understandable interest for a 12-year-old, but I think really the... Uh, um, the entire Taft family, it's a family affair. They're just in love with the law. They're in love with the, uh, the, the judiciary. Taft's father, Alfonso Taft, um, was a, a judge on the Ohio Superior Court. He was later attorney general under Ulysses S. Grant. Um, Taft's son, Robert A. Taft, he's most famous, of course, for being in the Senate. Uh, and he runs for president multiple times. But Robert Alfonso Taft, son of William Howard, um, you can also see this even when he's a child. So, um, when Taft was uh, civil governor of the Philippines, there were some issues with lands in the Philippines that were owned by, by Catholic friars. And Taft actually went to the Vatican to negotiate the sale of these with Leo XIII, who was the Pope at the time. And Leo XIII had a reputation for being this very charming man. And so he met the whole Taft family and talked to the kids. And again, there's a story that Leo looks at Robert Alfonso, the son, and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, I want to be chief justice. It's the best job in the world. It's even better than being president, right? So this is just something, it's in the family. And you know, by the way, human interest. Uh, there's a William Howard Taft V, who's a, a prominent lawyer in New York City. He's a former uh, clerk for Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court. So generations of Tafts have been you know, very, very thoughtful lawyers. So the Tafts just loved the law. And you can see this in William Howard Taft, the first career. He's making efforts to be a judge to get on the Supreme Court. In his early 30s, he and his friends sort of mobilize, lobby then-President Benjamin Harrison to get him a Supreme Court seat. Um, and that doesn't work out. He's instead made Solicitor General, who, of course, argues in front of the Supreme yeah, Court. Not a bad fallback gig. Uh, not a bad fallback. Um, by 1892, he's out of being Solicitor General, and he's put on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, where he serves for about eight years. And so, in a way, Taft seems surprised in 1900. Uh, he's in his early 40s. He'd be about 43 <laughs> yes. at the time. Yeah. 
William McKinley calls him in to the White House and says, I want to make you, uh, I want to make you governor of the Philippines. Um, and Taft's response is basically, you know I want to be on the Supreme Court. Um, what's going on with this? And McKinley basically promises him, I think you need to do this other job. I think your talents would suit you for it. But if you take this job in the Philippines, it won't hurt you when the Supreme Court uh, slot opens up. So McKinley sort of half promises him a job on the Supreme Court. What I think is really interesting is that Taft seems to shift gears a bit. He goes to the Philippines. He actually insists that he has to be um, the head of the second Philippine commission. He wants to be the civil governor. He doesn't just want to be on a commission. So he actually asks for executive responsibility, not just sort of administrative or judicial responsibility. He demands that politely, I'm sure. Uh, you <laughs> ask things politely from the president. Um, but he wants that. And there's a lot of evidence that he's a very good executive in uh, the Philippines. Louis Gould, who's a, a major scholar of the progressive era, writes that when he was in the Philippines, Taft basked in the national limelight uh, because he was doing really good work there. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who's then vice president, is writing these glowing editorials about what a good executive Taft is in the Philippines. And when Teddy Roosevelt becomes president after uh, William McKinley's assassinated, Roosevelt keeps trying to put Taft on the Supreme Court in 1903 and uh, in 1902. He offers Taft twice an opportunity to go on the Supreme Court. He's going to pull him out of Manila uh, and put him in Washington. And not only does Taft refuse, but when Taft finally gives in because he feels like he has to do what the boss says, uh, the Philippine people protest. There are these massive protests at the governor's palace in Manila. And even Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who's you know, kind of a stubborn guy, backs off and says, fine, fine, I'll leave you out there. You're doing a good job. So it's really, um, I think it shows that Taft does want to be on the Supreme Court, but he also has these political ambitions. When he finally leaves the Philippines, it's not to go to the Supreme Court, it's to be Secretary of War, where he can continue overseeing the Philippines, right, because he wants to finish a job there. But it also seems pretty clear he had presidential ambitions at the time. When he's convinced to take the job as Secretary of War, from the records we have, both Teddy Roosevelt, the president, and Elihu Root, who's the outgoing Secretary of War, kind of hint to him, hey, take this job, come back, be Secretary of War, and you'll probably be the Republican nominee in 1908. Where do you think that comes from? Because as we mentioned, you know, his whole thing prior to 1900 basically was, I want to be on the Supreme Court. He gets his friends to lobby for him when he's like in his 30s, and then he's offered it three times. He's like in his 40s right now. It's a lifetime job. Like, who cares if he upsets somebody taking this job? It's for life. They can't do anything about once he's got it. Why does why, why do his priorities shift, do you think? Yeah. Um, the standard narrative, which I think is partially right, but certainly missing some things. The standard narrative is Taft just loved the quiet stability of the law. He could be a judge. He'd have his law library. He'd have a nice chair and a desk. And, you know, he could just do his thing and he wouldn't have to worry about political wheeling and dealing. He wouldn't have to worry about uh, re-election. And the standard narrative often has been something like, but Mrs. Taft wanted to be first lady yeah. and he was just totally under his wife's thumb. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly... There, Yes, she wanted to be first lady. She visited the White House when she was, I think, a teenager, and she said, I want to come back. Um, <laughs> Half's family members uh, certainly thought he had political uh, potential, and they were pushing him for this. It's also true that I think Taft himself was actually an ambitious guy, but he covered it up very nicely. Mm -hmm. He had this sort of veil of disinterest. Um, 
at the time, you didn't really run for president. You stood for president. You were asked to do it, right? Yeah. And I think Taft had that sense um, that he needed to at least present an aura of humility, an aura of being called to serve his country. But you know, you're really asking like the central the, the central question that's been debated was Taft ambitious or was he this apolitical judge? And there's this great, great quote um, from 1910. So Taft is about halfway through his presidency and somebody asks him, would you rather be president or chief justice? Right? The essential question for Taft's collective. And he says this, I would rather be chief justice. A quieter life is more in keeping with my temperament. But when I take into consideration that I go into history as a president, I'm inclined to think that to be president well compensates one for all of the trials. <laughs> right? So you've got both sides of Taft. He loves the law. He wants to be a judge. He keeps saying, my greatest ambition is to be chief justice. And he ends his career there. He reaches the height of his ambition. But his ambition was obviously political as well as judicial. He likes being a judge. He also likes the prestige of being a president. And I think the claims that you sometimes see, especially in the older scholarship, it's really been corrected now or being corrected. The claims that he hated being president, he didn't have any political sense, he had no political antennae, these things have just been really greatly exaggerated. He's an ambitious guy. He sought advancement. He was really good at getting the jobs he wanted. Yeah, that's um, very clear from his career. Goodness. Yeah. Um, he's the only man in history whose party chooses him both to be president and to be chief justice. And I think when we let that sink in, we realize the narrative is really more complicated. This is a guy who is great at figuring out how to get his party, how to impress party elites and get the jobs he wanted. And so the idea that he's not really ambitious, ambitious and it's just his wife making him do it. His wife was ambitious too. Uh, and Taft was always very polite and said, oh, she's the real boss. She's the politician of the family. <laughs> My Helen, she's just a brilliant politician. But I think we've taken that at face value. And it was obviously just a guy who respected his wife and wanted to praise her in public. That's true. That's a great way to deflect. It was very, uh, you know, like founding father. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to run. You know, that whole generation was all about that. It feels like a real throwback to kind of those yeah. days and that attitude and approach. So, so Taft, he becomes president first. Yes. And from 1909 to 1913, he gets nominated for the Supreme Court in 1921. I guess technically like his third nomination, you know, because TR kept trying and he, he said no. Yeah. And the next part will sound crazy to anybody who follows Supreme Court nomination processes today. Taft was confirmed the same day he was nominated by a 60 to four vote in the Senate. How in the world did it happen that fast? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, especially anybody who's followed, like you said, the recent Supreme Court appointments, this is just shocking. And I think it's a little bit surprising even in 1921. But in a way, it's not actually that surprising in 1921. If you go back and look at Supreme Court nominees back, say, to Washington, most of them sailed through pretty easily. Now, even George Washington tried to nominate some people and the Senate turned him down. So the guy who we kind of regard as like the American political demigod sometimes got his nose bloodied by the Senate. But by and large, if a nominee was basically qualified, they probably went through the Senate confirmation process pretty quickly and pretty easily. So I looked back basically 1900 to 1990. So roughly William McKinley through, let's say halfway through George H.W. Bush's presidency. Only about a half dozen Supreme Court nominees don't go through. Right, right. By and large, and you know, I, I'm speaking in general terms, 
But usually these things weren't terribly controversial. Most of these people went through the confirmation process and they got at least a two to one vote in the Senate, a margin of two to one. So you're right, it's surprising, but in some ways it's not as surprising. And we should also remember that the Senate's role back then was just not, it wasn't as keyed up. It wasn't quite as political on these issues as we're used to now. So for instance, the Senate Judicial Ju Senate Judiciary Committee didn't actually hold public hearings on a Supreme Court nominee until 1916 when Louis Brandeis went up. Oh, and wow. no Supreme Court nominee ever appeared before the Supreme before the Senate Judiciary Committee prior to getting their vote until 1925 uh, with Harlan Fisk Stone. Wow. So it really was more about reputation, looking at someone's overall qualifications. And I think that helped. So June 30th, 1921, Taft's nomination, Warren G. Harding sends over this nomination for his fellow uh, Ohioan statesman, and Taft uh, hoped, there was hope that he would just get a voice vote without much debate, uh, which had often happened. Um, PR, Teddy Roosevelt had three nominees to the Supreme Court, all three of them just got a voice vote. There wasn't really meaningful debate. Uh, Taft didn't get through quite as easily, like you point out, a 60 to four vote, four senators objected, they demanded a debate, but there's only something like a half hour or an hour of debate and then things <laughs> move forward. So, you know, the, the, the political consequences, the rockiness of this, oh, we had a half hour of debate before nice. the It's not really that bad. I'm sure, um, you know, think how many Supreme Court nominees would love to have their nomination sail through with half an hour. And yeah, that would be oh considered a little bit controversial. So uh, did him being a former president influence the support for his nomination and, and how he sailed through the Senate or I guess hit that 30 minutes of debate? <laughs> yeah, I think you can see that his time as presidency, it made sure he was a known quantity and that probably sped up the debate. Let's be honest here. Taft was probably the best known quantity of every of any future Supreme Court justice ever. Right. Um no member of the Senate could claim they didn't know this guy's qualifications. He had a very public life for a very long time. And I think you can see that being president helped him, actually, ironically, with a lot of Democrats and hurt him with some insurgent progressives. So sort of the most radical of the progressive Republicans. He's a known quantity, um, and, but you see a lot of senators, especially some Democrats who basically say, when he was a politician, when he was president, we thought he was a good guy. We thought he was fair-minded. So uh, the Senate Democratic leader, uh, Oscar Underwood of Alabama, says, look, Cap deserves to be confirmed. We know he's fair-minded. We know he merits this. There are several other Democrats who say the same thing. There's one uh, Democratic senator from Louisiana who had actually served under Taft in the Philippines when Taft was civil governor. And he says, look, the guy's fair. He has all these great abilities. He's a decent guy. The funny thing is, of those four votes against Taft, three of them are actually from insurgent Republicans. Right. <laughs> um, one of them is really interesting. Um, Senior, Senator William Bora of Idaho, uh, he and Taft had crossed swords multiple times when Taft was president. But his complaint about the Taft nomination is just kind of hilarious because he says two things. One, in 1912, when Taft lost his reelection bid for the presidency, he was repudiated by the country. So he's actually making a political argument against confirming this guy as a judge. But then he turns around and says, don't make a politician a judge. So okay. think about it. In 1921, Taft had been a politician for 20 years. He hadn't yeah. been a judge since 1900. Yeah. And so Bora actually says, no, this guy's just a politician. He's not a judge. It's the exact opposite of the traditional narrative we're used to, that Taft was a judge at heart and not really a politician. 
Huh. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. You know, the other Republicans who, who voted against him um, had opposed him in 1912 when Taft was running for president and he had to fight Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party. So one of them was Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin, big name, uh, sort of fire-breathing progressive from Wisconsin who had run against Taft in the Republican primary in 1912 and you know was always grumpy that he lost. The other was Hiram Johnson of California who'd actually been Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose vice presidential candidate. Ah. So you've got these two, you know, they're, they're Republicans, they're, they're insurgent Republicans. That's where most of the opposition to Taft came from. So you've got all that. You've got this political backstory from eight or nine years before. But again, I mean, the surprising thing is just how boring this was. We've got some <laughs> senators, right? Yeah. One senator says nobody spoke longer than five minutes. So you've got these very brief speeches. People need to get something off their chest. I like Taft. I dislike Taft. They hold a vote. It's over. So it's just incredibly low key. Yeah. And the other thing, like I, the, a lot of the names you mentioned, like Bora, they're guys I haven't mentioned my show yet, but they keep showing up as I do my research as just being a pain in the butt for everybody, it seems. So, you know, some of it just seems like that's just their style. They, they just want it. They just got complaints that they want to have heard. Um, OK, so so when Taft joins the Supreme Court, he's not just any justice. He's the chief justice. What makes the chief justice different from the other justices? Yeah. So the big thing is the day you become chief justice, you get automatic seniority. So normally on the Supreme Court, seniority goes by how long you're on the court. And you can actually see this. You know, if you uh, if you ever see interviews with modern Supreme Court justices, whoever the junior justice is kind of gets a bad job, right? So like when the justices are in conference, they don't have their clerks, they don't have pages or anything. It's just the nine justices in a room and the junior justice has to go open the door if anybody knocks, right? So they get <laughs> Supreme Court justices and they're complaining, you know, I've been the junior justice for five years and I'm in mid-sentence making some brilliant legal point and I have to get up and open the door and I have to stop. And get right? some coffee while you're at it. Thank you. <laughs> right. And I think that happens, right? A, a justice forgets their eyeglasses or wants a cup of coffee and so they call somebody to bring the coffee in and then the junior justice has to be you know, the, the waiter, basically. Awesome. Taft so gets automatic seniority. Um, and the big thing is Taft felt he had to be chief justice. So uh, over Christmas, 1920, so right after Warren Harding wins election uh, as president, but before he's sworn in, he calls Taft in and they have a meeting and basically Harding saying, hey, you still want to be on the Supreme Court? And Taft tells him, yes, but I feel like I have to be chief justice at this point. I couldn't take anything else because I'm an elder statesman. I've been president. Three of the current members of the Supreme Court were my nominees, and it would be kind of embarrassing if I'm now the junior justice under these guys I put in as president. Mm, mm, so um, when Chief Justice White, who Taft had actually elevated from justice to chief justice, I think in 1910 or 1911, when White moves off the court, Taft is his replacement. Um, what's the biggest thing uh, that's sort of the formal power of the chief justice? The chief justice, because he has automatic seniority, when he's in the majority, he gets to decide which justice will write the majority opinion. Oh, okay. So that's a big deal because Taft only is in the minority in 19 cases in eight and a half years. He votes with the majority almost all the time. And so he almost always gets to decide which justice will write an opinion. Interesting. That means he can assign it to himself if he wants to, or he can go to a specific judge who he trusts or whatever. 
Yeah. And so, you know, and we can talk about this more as we move forward, but that really, it's a sort of, it's a formal power, but it's also a sort of soft power. It's a sort of indirect way of giving certain opinions to judges who have certain strengths, getting around certain judges who maybe are sort of curmudgeons or wouldn't have a strength in writing that opinion. It's a big deal. And also tap to sort of the figurehead for the court. And again, we can get into that more afterwards, but that's basically where, where it comes down to. I'm suddenly wondering if that power ever influences how judges vote, <laughs> like the I, I want to be able to be in the minority so I can write my own thing or like if this if the yeah. chief justice ever holds that over people in any way. Um, but well, I, I hope they don't hold it over people. Right. But I think you can see cases. Um, there's and this is speculation because the yeah, voting. Totally, totally, the we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are cases where, say, Charles Evans Hughes seems to almost always vote with the majority when he's chief justice, even when sometimes maybe it doesn't quite align with his own preferences. Why would he do that? Well, partially, uh, the chief justice is often really concerned about um, public legitimacy for the courts. You always get uh, the current chief justice, John Roberts, there's always these discussions. Is he voting maybe against the conservatives and with the liberals because he wants to show that the court isn't a bunch of partisan hacks. I think you see that sometimes. Sometimes the chief justice has more concern with legitimacy, but also, you know, if he votes with the majority, maybe he can say, I'm not crazy about this decision, so maybe I'll write the opinion and make yeah. it as moderate as possible, right? Those things can happen. That and, is so crazy. Yeah. So we'll, oh, we'll never okay. quite know, but it can happen. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That, that was very enlightening. Um, okay. So, so, Back to basically kind of the thesis of your book, you know, Taft is often seen as more conservative or reactionary. You argue he's more progressive than meets the eye. Where do you see that play out when he's in the court? Where do you see his progressivism play out? And and then what decisions make people say, no, no, look, he's just this old curmudgeonly, you know, conservative up there. Yeah. So, I mean, Taft is on the court for eight and a half years. He's writing opinions on, you know, stolen cars, search and seizure, interstate commerce, patent law, admiralty law, whatever. So what I want to hone in on is one of his cases specifically uh, that has to deal with labor regulations, because of course, this is a very big concern during the progressive era. You have a lot of progressives who are really angry at the judiciary and especially at the Supreme Court, because courts are often striking down either state or national laws that are intended to protect workers. So you have things like minimum wage laws or maximum hours laws that are at times ruled to be unconstitutional. Wow. And the rationale usually is uh, the idea of the right to contract. So the argument is, well, you've got two adults, they're free, they're mature, you've got an employer and an employee, and they have a right freely to make a contract sort of on whatever terms they want, and the government shouldn't be interfering. That's the type of argument that now we probably say is pretty libertarian. Uh, Most conservatives, I think, are fine with minimum wage laws. There might be some exceptions to that, but it's sort of a a very libertarian approach. Yeah. You get a case like this that comes before the Supreme Court in 1923. It's called Adkins versus Children's Hospital. It's technically a federal law because it's regulating contracts in the District of Columbia, and it sets a minimum wage for women who are in the workforce. So the Supreme Court strikes this down. There's a majority opinion by uh, Justice George Sutherland. And basically they say, look, this law is arbitrary because it benefits the employees uh, by guaranteeing them a minimum wage, whether their actual work output is worth that amount of money or not. 
And so the majority says this is unfair, it protects the interests of the worker, and it doesn't take account of the interests of the employer. Taft dissents, um, and I think it's a very notable dissent for a couple of reasons. The most obvious thing is Taft never dissented. He only voted against the majority 19 times. He only wrote two dissents. So sometimes he might dissent, but he wouldn't write an opinion. He'd just vote no. There are only two written dissents, and this is one of them. So obviously, he really cared about this. This was a principled thing. If he had actually been a rock-ribbed conservative, he would have gone along with Sutherland, right? That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty obvious. Um, the other thing is, he makes an argument um, that says, we care about the right to contract, and government regulations are okay, too. We believe in economic freedom, but regulations can still be acceptable. Basically, he says, it's just not arbitrary for the government to regulate in order to protect the weaker party, the worker. Because, Taft explains, the employee might be so poor, might be in such need of work and pay, that they would accept any wages offered, no matter how low or how unfair. So he's actually kind of arguing that some regulations, by protecting the weaker party, by trying to sort of level the playing field, actually protects the freedom of contract because it makes sure that neither one, coercion would be the wrong word, but that neither one of them sort of has to agree because they're saying, I just need a job. Right. It's better to have some money to feed my kids and my family than no money whatsoever. So right. kind of making an argument that these regulations make freedom of contract um, more principled. Both sides have a better ability to wheel and deal and to contract freely. So that's a case where Taft is really saying something that we would normally consider more liberal or more progressive. So why does he have this reputation for being some sort of hardline conservative? I think it's usually because people look at the Adkins dissent and say, eh, it's an aberration. He just did it once. I don't think that's true. Uh, but that's often said. And Taft is usually compared to these guys like, say, Louis Brandeis, who are lionized by academia. And people say, well, he's not as far to the left as Brandeis. He's probably a conservative. Taft isn't a liberal like Brandeis. The guys didn't like each other very much. Uh, they had a pretty long history. For whatever it's worth, on the Supreme Court, they started getting along better. So there's a sort of a, a semi-happy ending, at least. <laughs> but, you know, Taft is one of these guys. On constitutional interpretation, he leans conservative. But he also realizes that the main thing the Constitution does is empowers the government. So normally, uh, we would think about conservative constitutionalism, and we'd say, um, conservatives would believe that the main thing the Constitution does is limit the government. Taft sees a positive role for the government. The Constitution first empowers the government and does also impose some restrictions, but primarily it empowers the government. Uh, and that means the government can often, not always, but very often, um, create various progressive policies, and that's fine with Taft. So how did Taft's position on the Supreme Court mirror or differ from his positions as president? Did he change his stance on anything? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that by and large, Taft is a pretty consistent guy. Um, if you look at how he approaches different issues, I don't want to get into all the weeds here, but say interstate commerce, government power to regulate the national economy, he's pretty conservative. If you look at how the court uh, thinks about presidential power versus how Taft thought about presidential power as president, He's pretty consistent. Uh, one thing I would say is I think there are times when Taft is actually better at explaining, at articulating his progressivism on the Supreme Court. So I want to uh, read you just a, a very short snippet. This is a letter Taft wrote to that guy, Elihu Root, right? So he's yeah, a, yeah. a notable statesman, Secretary of State, Secretary of War under Teddy Roosevelt. He comes back later in the 20s and holds various posts. But Taft is writing about 
what an ideal Supreme Court justice would look like. And I think it actually helps explain his approach. He says this, we ought not to have too many men on the court who are reactionary on the subject of the Constitution. Instead, we want men who are liberal, but still believe that the cornerstone of our civilization is in the proper maintenance of the guarantees of rights that the Constitution creates. So you've got this idea, he's a constitutionalist, and he's a progressive, and he doesn't really see much of a distinction between those things. He just thinks you need to create a sort of balance. Did being a former president impact Taft's ability to lead the court or, or his goals on the court? I think you can see that he appreciates, you can see that his, his presidential experience helps him. Um, Taft comes in and I argue uh, he basically acts as a sort of chief executive for the court. There are maybe some habits or some talents uh, that he had as president of leadership that allowed him to play a more a significant role. And I think you see that he actually interjected himself quite actively into judicial policymaking. So people often say he's an administrator for the court, but Taft isn't just talking about administrative questions of how you do certain things. He's actually talking about how can we reform the court as an institution to make sure it does its job in a better way, to make sure it can sometimes do different and more important things. So previous chief justices had been strictly apolitical. They wouldn't even articulate the needs of the court to say Congress. Congress has to fund the court, has to make various decisions. And these chief justices felt that they had to take such a hands-off approach to prove that they were just judges and not political hacks, which isn't a bad idea, by the way, but they took such a hands-off approach that when the court was desperately in need of something, when the judiciary needed, say, law libraries so the judges could look up precedents, or they needed more judges, or they needed more buildings, these chief justices just refused to say anything. They felt like it would harm their reputation to go to Congress. And so actually, the, the, uh, the attorney general was really sort of the voice of the judiciary. But he's, of course, an executive officer. He's in a different branch. And so he doesn't quite know the needs of the judiciary. So Taft really does switch gears. Um, and he says, as chief justice, I think it's my job to explain what my branch needs. There's some controversy over this. Some people think he overstepped some lines of propriety, but basically you had a, a federal court system that was massively behind in its work. Um, often important Supreme Court cases took five years uh, before there was a decision. And Taft, and you can again see sort of a progressive interest in updating administrative procedures, in efficiency, in economy. Taft basically said, look, I have to go to Congress and say, these are things we need as an institution. I'm not being a partisan hack. I'm just explaining what it's going to take to make the third branch of government do its job under the Constitution. So in 1922, um, he basically, you know, you could compare it to like a State of the Union address that the president would give. Taft has this piece of writing that's basically a state of the judiciary message. Who, is it something like he just sends to Congress? He sends to the press? Like he stands up in his closet? Like where is this <laughs> delivered? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a sort of public statement. It goes in a law review. Okay. Okay. Um, so he says, look, we need more judges. We need a ju judicial conference that'll bring together the leaders of the judiciary and they can discuss their needs. We need to standardize rules of procedure. We need to limit um, the mandatory jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, the cases the Supreme Court has to take, whether they're important or not. And maybe most famously, um, half gets a Supreme Court building. Yeah. So, right back in, the back in the day, the Supreme Court didn't have its own building. They met in the basement of the Capitol. Um, and Taft lobbies Congress for funds, and the fact that we have the Supreme Court building today, it's not like Taft did it on its own. On his own, obviously there are other people involved, but Taft was the moving force behind that. 
that that was one thing that really jumped out to me of these things that you just assume are always there. Like there's always been a Capitol building and a White House or an executive mansion. Surely the Supreme Court always had like something right No. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. So what um, in what ways would you say Taft changed or molded the court? You know, talking about all these things he he was trying to do. are, Are those the ways? Are there other ways? And what was his legacy as a justice? Right. Good. So let me just sort of flesh out some of the things that I briefly mentioned just a couple minutes ago. Um, In 1922, Taft convinces Congress, he plays a a role, obviously he's not the only guy again, but he he plays a role in convincing Congress to create what uh, we now call the Judicial Conference. At the time, it was called the Conference of Senior Circuit Court Judges. So basically, it brought um, the senior judges from all the various national circuit courts into D.C. They met with various Supreme Court justices, and they just conferred about you know, is my circuit massively behind? Are we unable to keep up with our work? Do we have maybe a judge who um, never does his job or is five years late on everything? Do we need more judges? Do we, How do we need to approach the problems that we're facing? And from that, you sort of streamline the process by which the courts can then turn around and go to Congress and say, these are the problems the whole federal judiciary is, is facing. So Taft sort of through that, he created an advisory council for himself, and he kind of made sure that he was the voice for the whole federal judiciary. He ended up being, in a more formal way, the guy that all of the judges could look to to help them out when they had certain needs. And again, you, you have this conference uh, that streamlines the process. So it's not just Taft going and complaining to Congress, we need this, we need that. There's this conference that really does look at the needs of the entire national judiciary uh, so that those needs can be communicated to Congress through its power to create courts, uh, to hire more judges, uh, to fund the federal judiciary. That would be one big thing. A second big thing, Taft is responsible for what we now know as the modern certiorari process. So at the time, the Supreme Court had mandatory jurisdiction, which means under the law, all of these cases could of right be appealed to the Supreme Court. So part of the law was that if you have a case, a federal case in the federal judiciary, and the dispute is valued at $1,000 or more, you have a right to appeal to the Supreme Court. So if you don't like what the lower court says, and you've got a case for $1,000, you can force the Supreme Court to listen to your case. On the one hand, maybe that's, that's good intentions. Uh, we want to make sure that people get a fair judgment. But even though $1,000 was worth a lot more at the time, think about what that would mean. If the Supreme Court had to look at every case that was worth $50,000, there's no way they could possibly keep up with the I'm curious, did that payment like go to pay for the court? Like, could it almost be seen as like, (laughs) yeah, I want my case to be seen. Here's $1,000 that's going to go pay for your salary. Like, no, yeah, okay. I'm afraid it okay, didn't work ahead. that way. So it was actually just that you're just, dis- uh, maybe, I, I, sorry if I was unclear. It's just that like, if you were suing me yeah. and you said that I owed you a thousand bucks. Oh, my bad, my bad. Straight up to the yes, Supreme Court, my right? apologies. So it's yeah. not even the litigation costs a thousand dollars because that would be practically every case. Yeah. It's just that we're fighting over a thousand dollars. And even though it's a private suit, you know, I, I laid cement for my driveway on your land or something. Right. Um, the Supreme Court has to hear that under the law. So it just, it needed to be updated. Right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Taft, uh, there's the Judge's Bill of 1925, so-called because 
members of the Supreme Court actually drafted most of the law and gave it to Congress, and Congress pretty much just passed it almost without debate. There's some debate, but basically it just sailed through because it was highly technical and they assumed the judges knew what they were talking about. <laughs> um, so there's, uh, there's the modern process. It's the, the certiorari process. It's called the rule of four. Uh, so basically, um, people who want to appeal to the Supreme Court, they say this case is really important. It's a major federal issue. It's a question of right. It's a question of the power of the national and state governments. It needs to be decided by the highest court in the land. They send um, an appeal to the Supreme Court and the judges get together and look at that. Obviously, their clerks play a big role, but the judges yeah. get together and look at that. And there's the rule of four. If four of the nine judges, justices, believe this is so important, the Supreme Court should hear it, then they hear it. So it's not even a majority, just four out of nine. It's just four out of nine. So it makes sure that, you know, if you've got a five, four court or something like that, the minority can push some issues, right? Uh, and also, what does that suggest? It suggests that the court knows that often, um, pretty much if the court takes a case, there's a good chance they're going to reverse the decision of the lower court. So the rule of four suggests that there's enough judges who think the lower court got it wrong, and there are other judges who are probably going to change their minds. Uh, because it'll be probably more than four at the end of the day uh, who will overturn that that decision. The last thing that I want to mention, just uh, it's, it's a lot of human interest, really. I'm not sure uh, other chief justices have quite acted the same way, but Taft, uh, and maybe you can see the former president coming through here, Taft advised Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, so the three Republicans who served back-to-back -back in the 20s and into the 30s just before FDR, Taft advised them on appointments the judiciary and especially the Supreme Court. Sometimes invited, sometimes maybe Taft was sort of sticking his nose in things where he didn't have as much business. Um, but there's, I've seen a letter from one of um, William Howard Taft's brothers. Uh, and the brother says, I just talked to Harding's attorney general. Uh, and the attorney general said, there won't be any Supreme Court nominees unless you sign off on them first. So Harding seemed to really want Taft's advice. Um, the other presidents, maybe Taft sort of gave them advice and they were polite about it. Um, but, but what we see is Taft actually was playing a pretty significant role. He was advising presidents. He also advised some Supreme, potential Supreme Court nominees. Hey, I know you're on the list. Here's things to watch out for. Here's things to prepare. Huh. Yeah. So Pierce Butler, uh, who's actually a Democrat uh, who goes on the Supreme Court, Taft advises him on what the process is going to look like. Uh, he says, you know, hey, get your... Uh, Butler's a Catholic. Get your parish priest and the local bishop to write you a letter of recommendation to the president. Get other local leaders around, you know, pulling for you. Um, and Taft, as chief justice, he actually appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee and testified on Butler's behalf because our old friend, Robert LaFollette, uh, thought that Butler was basically a corporate hack. And so mm. Taft went uh, to the Senate, uh, the Judiciary Committee, and said, yeah, not really. Um, he defended this guy. So obviously Taft wasn't president. He couldn't nominate. He almost never got his, his number one choice. Butler, who he was most involved in, was actually his second choice. But one thing that seems to be true is that Taft could actually veto or torpedo a nomination if he thought the judge was really a hack. Wow. So Taft seemed to have enough sway that if he went to the president and said, look, I know this guy maybe looks good, but here are problems. This guy was a sitting judge, and yet he had got involved in this presidential campaign, or he's had certain improprieties. It seemed like Taft actually had enough sway that he could 
you know, he could sort of warn off the president, make sure that somebody Taft believes was problematic wouldn't go on the court. And is that something that, from your understanding, is unique to Taft? Is that something you've heard of other chief justices doing? I mean, Taft is the model for this. That's the model um, for this. Yeah, right. there are there are some others maybe uh, who might have been consulted, but Taft seems to have been most forward in this, and certainly. It's pretty much unimaginable uh, that, say, John Roberts would wander over, sorry, uh, would drive over to the White House, right? And oh, say, you could wander, you know, it's good for your health to walk. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure he has a, a, a car to make sure that nobody, you know, right. harasses him or bothers him. Anyway, it's unimaginable uh, yeah. that a modern chief justice would do this. I just don't think we'd see that happening because they would feel it was improper. Yeah. Um, Taft defended it in various ways and for whatever it's worth. Taft actually went to Republican presidents and said, look, um, the Supreme Court is almost all Republican appointees, and you need to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court who's known as a Democrat huh. to make sure that we have, um, that we that present ourselves to the public, right? And yeah. we say, this isn't this isn't a partisan institution. So, you know, I- Yeah, that definitely wouldn't happen today. <laughs> I, I also think that's true, right? So maybe Taft did overstep some things, but there's also a way in which he was bipartisan about it. Uh, which again, you know, it's it's surprising on both sides. All right. So, so the broad picture, uh, how would you say Taft ranked as a Supreme Court justice? Is he the SCOTUS with the mostest? <laughs> well, I like Taft personally. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time with him. Yeah. But in all fairness, I think I'd have to say no. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's think about it sort of in two ways. The first thing would be how about um, Taft's influence in terms of jurisprudence. Sure. Was he able to leave a really big legacy in terms of jurisprudence? And yes let's and define no. jurisprudence real quick for me. That's like law that you shaped. Is that what that is? What's jurisprudence mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good, good. Yeah, that's great. So did Taft's Supreme Court opinions have a lasting legacy? Do people keep on going back and saying, well, here's what the Taft court did, and this is a critical precedent that we can never change. Awesome. He's a Catholic you. type of guy where you appeal to him and say, Taft said this, so he must have been right. Right. Uh, right? So you've got guys like, say, John Marshall, who's right. generally regarded as the greatest Supreme Court justice ever. Pretty much, if you're writing an opinion and you say, John Marshall said this, that, and the other, the argument's when? over. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. So is, is Taft like that? Well, not really. Yes and no. There are some cases where I think Taft's jurisprudence did have a legacy. Um, so in 1937, there's the so-called switch in time that saved nine. And the standard narrative is the Supreme Court set, stopped striking down FDR's New Deal legislation. Yeah. Um, Taft had certain opinions that influenced the way the Supreme Court went about that in 1937. So his Successor as Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes um, wrote two major opinions in 1937, and in both of those cases, you see him looking back at Taft's precedents and using Taft's logic to explain what he's doing. And so I think that is a big deal. Um, and so you can see this influence, but we'd probably say that Hughes's opinions are more important than Taft, the Taft opinions that he relied upon. Yeah. Um, the other thing is Taft, um, although he has some important decisions, Taft was a generous chief justice. We talked about his power to assign cases. Yes. And one thing Taft did was he went out of his way to make sure that he gave his fellow justices the cases they wanted, which mm. often meant that Taft sort of himself took on the less um, desirable cases, right? So Taft would take on complicated patent law cases that no one else wanted to deal with. And 
maybe there's a patent law lawyer out there listening to this who's going to be disappointed or insulted. And I really am sorry, but you know, when you read constitutional law, you don't usually go to patent law. Most people don't care about what too much what the Supreme Court has to say about patent law. So in terms of his jurisprudence, there's an influence. Is he the most important judge? No. Uh, somebody like John Marshall, uh, probably somebody like Hughes, uh, would have an easy case for being higher on the list. How about, secondly, what about Taft's influence on the federal judiciary? Because I think this is where we'd see a stronger case. Yeah. Obviously, he deserves credit for that 1925 judges bill, the modern yeah. certiorari process, uh, creating the conference of senior, senior circuit uh, judges, even the Supreme Court building. I think that's where we'd really see his legacy. Um, again, is he the biggest deal ever? Probably we'd still go to John Marshall and say that this guy is the best. Um, second place, I personally would say either Charles Evans Hughes or Taft. So I think in terms of how he shaped the judiciary, he has, he has some work that we often tend to forget or not appreciate as much. And I think Taft is actually pretty high on the list of chief justices who had an impact there. Awesome. Um, what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Taft's time on the Supreme Court? Yeah, I would say probably the lesson is that soft power is the way to go when you're a justice, right? Especially when you're the chief justice. So Taft's influence as chief justice, it almost never came down to formal power, right? Formal power, he gets one vote and he, his salary is a little bit better than the other justices and he can assign cases, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. right? But that's not a lot of power when you compare that to, say, the head of the executive branch, the president. Taft couldn't fire his fellow justices. He couldn't fire even a district court judge, right? If he's leading, it's because he persuades people to follow. Um, when he's lobbying Congress, that has to be soft power. He can't make Congress do anything. Congress could refuse to even let him come in and testify before a committee, uh, right? That's up to Congress. Um, so you see on the one hand that Taft was willing to be a little bit forceful in terms of going to Congress and saying, dear Congress, the judiciary really needs this help. Would you please consider that? But you also see that Taft was actually pretty diplomatic about the process. So for instance, uh, there were times when various Supreme Court justices went to Congress and did something that we could fairly call lobbying. The judges bill in 1925, two or three judges went to the Supreme Court for two or three days. But Taft got word that because he was an ex-president, because he was regarded as a political figure, because he had this political baggage, that there were some members of Congress who didn't want him to do that. And so he basically said, fine, I'll send these other justices and they don't have this political baggage and they'll make the case instead of me. I'll be low key about it. I'll take a step back. You know, in the age of um, angry tweets and press conferences to solve all problems, yeah. it's, a, it's a really principled and thoughtful type of leadership. Um, and you see this also in terms of just how he led the Supreme Court itself. Taft wanted to make the federal judiciary stronger. And so one thing he wanted was he wanted to get opinions from the Supreme Court that really settled an issue permanently. Mm. How do you do that? Well, one thing would be get a strong opinion and make sure you get unanimous support from the Supreme Court, right? Even today, by the way, about uh, something like half of the Supreme Court's opinions are actually unanimous. It's like 40 or 50%. We don't usually think about that because we think about the controversial cases that are closer. Um, but Taft wanted to say, look, we're a legal body. We're these legal experts, and we actually all agreed on many of these issues. Uh, and he realized the Supreme Court was hurt if you had a really notable and angry dissent, 
Um, mm-hmm. 1920s, Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes are often called the great dissenters, right? And so Taft knew this would hurt the Supreme Court. So he used his power and his influence as chief justice to try to bring the court together. He called it massing the court, get the whole court behind a decision. Um, how did he do this? Sometimes it was because he basically reached across the aisle. So he would uh, say, hey, look, Brandeis and Holmes, I know y'all don't like this opinion written by a more conservative justice. What can we do to make this better? And in some cases, he would even take an opinion that went to one justice. And maybe that justice was a total curmudgeon and wrote an angry opinion that you know, put other people off. And he'd actually take that opinion away from that justice and say, thanks for your effort. I'm going to write the opinion now. I'm the oh, chief justice. Yeah. And he'd write an opinion that compromised. And in case after case, you can find that guys like Brandeis and Holmes who sometimes were critical of Taft, um, as well as some of the guys on the extreme right, maybe somebody like uh, McReynolds, these people would say, you know what? Taft actually did a pretty good job. Uh, There were things I was worried about, but he took most of it out. He wrote maybe a narrower opinion and he brought people together. And you can find multiple cases where these guys are saying, there's a quote from Brandeis, I'd written a really stinging dissent, but the chief justice did such a good job I just threw it away and I didn't actually. <laughs> right? So he was willing to listen to their concerns. He was willing to take even the minority and say, hey, you're making some good legal points. I'll incorporate that in the majority opinion. Or maybe there's just some things we don't need to take up right now. Let's have yeah. a narrower opinion that we can all get behind. And basically it was, he cared about what the minority thought. He would use his formal power to reassign opinions. And he was a nice guy. He was polite even to the people um, who disagreed with him on some legal issues. And that paid off. So in, during his, his, his tenure, he got the court up to about 84% of its written opinions being unanimous and 91% of all of their decisions total being unanimous. Wow. And the really interesting thing is less than 1% of the single vote decisions, so like a 5-4 decision, yes, less yeah. than 1% of the total decisions ended up being 5-4 or 4-3 you know, or something like that. What's like the math more recently by comparison? Like, what would you say? How many five four decisions do you get today oh, out gosh. of the whole batch? I, you know, I didn't look that up. But okay, no, I know it. I hate to put you on the spot. Uh, SCOTUS blog, right? They've yeah. often got these nice little pie graphs on the right hand side. Uh, it lists for the last year how many decisions were decided what way. So I'm, I'm sorry I don't have it, but if, if you just want to look that up, SCOTUS blog is great for these sorts of statistics. This has been a fascinating dive into the Supreme Court via uh, our old friend, President Taft. If you'd like to hear more from Kevin Burns, please check out William Howard Taft's Constitutional Progressivism. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. Yeah, thanks again, Kenny. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and administration of Woodrow Wilson, Was he a champion of economic progressivism, a racist reactionary, or just a hopeless romantic? Why not all three? 
That plus World War I is next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>